Amen. Well, that hymn is a fitting segue to our sermon text this morning, which is Psalm 57. Uh, so I invite you to turn to Psalm 57. Uh, this is on page 477, if you're using one of the black Bibles uh, in the seat in front of you. Again, my name is Stephen Story. I serve as the executive pastor here. Last Sunday, uh, Bert concluded our sermon series on the Incarnation, and uh, Lord willing, he'll be back in the pulpit next week. And it's my joy to lead us today in considering this text here, Psalm 57. So if you would, uh, follow along as I read, and then we'll pray and look at what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Psalm 57, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we ask that your spirit would illuminate it now as we consider what you would say to us through your servant, David. Give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the great longings that we all have is to make sense out of our lives. We want to understand the plan. We want a purpose. We want to understand how it all fits together. We ask our kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? We're in high school. We may sense the pressure to figure out what kind of job we'll get after we graduate or where we want to go to college. What major will we choose? We might sketch out our plans for building a career. We'll take these classes. We'll get this internship. Then we'll pursue this ideal job. Maybe we envision our plans to get married and start a family. Of course, life rarely works out the way we envision. And there are moments when we wonder, what is going on in my life? This seems like such a random collection of events and experiences and setbacks. How can I make sense out of all this? Maybe you feel some of that today, the start of a new year, 
a subtle pressure that you need to put together a plan so that the next 12 months make some sort of sense. In 2005, Steve Jobs of Apple gave the commencement address at Stanford University, and he spoke about this experience of trying to make sense out of all the ups and downs in life. He said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. You have to trust in something. Of course, in one sense, Jobs was right. The things that we go through in life often make a lot more sense looking back on them than they do in the moment or than when we try to think about the future. Jobs was also right in his instinct to want to trust in something. Sadly, however, he was not a Christian, and the best he could offer was to trust in your gut or destiny or karma or whatever. Well, how wonderful is it that we as Christians don't have to wonder what that something is that we ought to trust in? On one level, we sometimes struggle to make sense out of what's happening and how it all fits together. But on another level, God has revealed to us what is happening and how it all fits together. He's revealed to us very clearly that he is in charge, that he has a plan for his children, and he is connecting all the dots in our lives in order to accomplish his plan that is for our good and will bring him great glory. In our passage this morning, David gives us a picture of what it looks like to be in the middle of life in a moment of great uncertainty, not able to see how the dots connect, and yet to have great confidence in God while rejoicing in his glory. So if you've trusted in Christ, this psalm will teach you this morning that God will fulfill his good purposes for you because he is committed to his own glory. You can hope You can rejoice in his steadfastness even when life seems uncertain. The psalm contains two sections, and the ending of each section has a common refrain. So if you look at the passage there, you'll notice that verse 5 is identical to verse 11. The same words mark the end of each section. Uh, So verses 1 to 5 is the first section, 6 through 11 is the second section. And that'll be our outline for the sermon this morning. Uh, So first of all, we'll see the God of providence in verses 1 through 5, the God of providence. And then we will see the God of all peoples in verses 6 through 11, the God of providence and the God of all peoples. The psalm opens with David pleading with God to deliver him, and the heading of the psalm gives us the general situation that he's in. These words are written by David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And you may remember that Saul was the first king of Israel. He was a tragically flawed king. He ultimately would reject God. Young David, the shepherd, was anointed as the future king who would one day succeed him. Saul did not like this. He did not like that God had rejected him. He did not like that David was to be the next king. So there are any number of accounts in the Bible telling us about Saul's attempts to kill David. Over in 1 Samuel 22, we read about David on the run from Saul. It says he fled to the city of Gath and hid there for a while. Then he left Gath and escaped 
to the cave of Adullam. And the story tells us how while he was there in the cave, others came down to his aid. And that, that story there seems to be the background for this psalm. So in verse 4, David poetically describes what this time was like for him. He says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. David's not just trying to avoid an awkward encounter with a guy who doesn't like him. No, he's fleeing from Saul who wants to kill him. This is like lying down on the ground with lions and fiery beasts circling around. His pursuers are not just trying to give him a hard time, they're out for blood. David feels vulnerable, he feels exposed, he feels in imminent danger. And with the enemy in hot pursuit, David runs deep into a cave trying to find a place of safety. And there he calls out to Yahweh, his God, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you, my soul takes refuge. David is hiding in the cave, looking for safety. But he knows that his real source of refuge is God. Notice how David describes the protection that's afforded to him by God. Verse 1, he says, In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Contrast this with the the cave. The cave is a, a cold, dead rock. It offers no compassion for David, no interest in David, no concern for his well-being. But God's protection, by contrast, is a living protection. It's pictured as wings over him to shelter him. David uses a a phrase here that's also used to describe the way God protected his great-grandmother. Over in Ruth chapter 2, Boaz, who is David's great-grandfather, is speaking to his future wife, Ruth, and he says to her, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. David's finding the same refuge that his great-grandmother had known. We also think of Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus speaks of his divine longing to see the people of Jerusalem uh, trust in him and look to him, and he laments their unbelief. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. David's taking refuge not in a cave, but in a God who offers personal, tender, living, and active care for those who run to him. And this God is not only tender and compassionate, he is mighty and powerful. Look at verse 2. He says, I cry out to God most high. Most high is not describing distance. It's not that God is far off and David has to get his attention. No, he's describing God's might, his power, his absolute reign and authority overall. David's God is not a regional deity like so many of the false gods of the nations around him. He's not like Baal, whom Elijah had shown to be powerless when people called on him. No, David is crying out to God most high. Yahweh is his name. Psalm 95 tells us that he is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. Psalm 139, David writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
And here's David in the depths of the earth. And he calls out confidently to God most high. Consider the the full portrait of God that David is painting for us here. God is loving and concerned, offering wings of living protection. He is strong and powerful. He is God most high. And now there's even a third layer. God has a plan and he is working to make his plan succeed. Notice verse two, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. David believes that God has a purpose or a plan for him. And he believes that God will fulfill that plan. He will bring it to completion. He will make sure that that plan succeeds. As a reformed church, one of the things we love to affirm is the sovereignty of God over all things. God is absolutely and completely in control of everything. There's nothing that happens in our lives or in this world or in the universe that is outside of his loving and all-powerful control. The idea of sovereignty gets at God's right and his power to do all that he wills. But did you ever stop to consider, it's theoretically possible that God could have the right to do all that he wills to do. He could have the power to do all that he wills to do. And yet, it's possible he could have no particular plan or purpose for how to exercise that sovereignty. He could could choose to merely observe what is unfolding in this world that he's made and then maybe react to it by stepping in from time to time. He could choose to experiment with things uh, that he has made, acting in his creation one way today, another way tomorrow, just to see what happens. He could choose to be detached and distant, having the right to act and the power to act, but choosing not really to exercise it, just to stay far away and leave his creation to its own devices. But none of these things are the picture of God that we see in the Bible. Yes, the Bible shows us that God is sovereign. He has the absolute right and power to do all that he wills to do. And the Bible teaches he exercises that sovereignty in a way that accords with his divine purpose. God has a plan and he sovereignly acts so as to intentionally bring that plan to completion. God not only connects the dots in our lives so that they make some sort of cohesive sense. More than that, he lovingly and wisely places the dots exactly where he wants them, and he connects them in his timing in a way that brings his plan to pass. This is what we call the providence of God. John Piper has a helpful shorthand definition for God's providence. He defines it as God's purposeful sovereignty, his purposeful sovereignty. Providence is sovereignty, absolute right and absolute power employed in a purposeful way. The Heidelberg Catechism explains the providence of God this way. God's providence is the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand.
In that last phrase, by his fatherly hand, this is what especially sets apart the Christian doctrine of providence, the loving, wise, and fatherly hand of God. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century pastor, understood that in talking about the providence of God, some people might be tempted to confuse providence with the godless notion of fate. So listen to to Spurgeon's words here. Some will say, ah, you believe in fate. I do not believe in fate at all. Fate says whatever is must be, but there is a difference between that and providence. Providence says whatever God ordains must be, but the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose. Everything in this world is working for some one great end. Our understanding of the providence of God, it comes from the the big story of the Bible, and it comes from specific passages like the one we're considering today. And here we see David knows Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be loving and kind, to be strong and mighty, and to have a good plan that he designed with great wisdom and that he is actively working to bring to completion. So this provides David not just an abstract hope that everything will somehow probably work out in the end. No, it provides a very personal hope. God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Now we might naturally wonder, what was the purpose of God for David? Well, in David's immediate future, God's purpose for David was to be king of Israel. And David knew this. Earlier in his life, God had uh, revealed to the prophet Samuel that he had rejected Saul as king of Israel. And God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem to seek out a man named Jesse because God said, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel went to Bethlehem and he was led to young David. For Samuel 16, 12, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. So David knew, and he believed by faith that God's purpose uh, to make him the king of Israel would come to pass. He understood that Saul and the others who were pursuing David, they were not just opposing David. They were opposing the plan revealed by God himself. And that meant David had to be delivered from that cave. He had to be rescued from Saul because God's very plan and purpose were at stake. Of course, God's even larger plan for David was to make him one of the forebears of the Messiah. God promised David that his royal line would be established forever. By the time we get to the New Testament, the Jewish people rightly understood from the prophets that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and would come out of Bethlehem. Of course, through the Messiah, God's rule and reign would one day extend not just to Israel, but to all the world. And David, as he's writing this psalm, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he understands that he is living in the midst of God's providential unfolding of this plan. God's purpose for David was to make him king, was to use David to bring about the promised Messiah. Even that was not the final part of the plan because the Messiah would save all of God's people, that they might be sons and daughters of God and might worship and glorify him forever. He realized that when God acts, 
He always acts in a way that results in glory for himself. Consider Isaiah 48. God speaks through the prophet and says that he works to save Israel, Isaiah 48.11, for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Do you see then how God's commitment to David is tied to God's commitment to his own glory? God has a, a plan for David. And that plan will result in worship and glory for God. God is unfailingly committed to his own glory. Therefore, God is unfailingly committed to his plan for David. And so David has personal hope that is rooted in the glory of God. This is why Psalm 57 offers such good news for us even today. You, Christian, you who have trusted in Christ, you can rightly and confidently and very personally say, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. This is not just an abstract sort of hope. It's a very real and personal hope for the children of God. In some ways, God's plan for you is no doubt very different than his plan for David. I assume God has not promise you that you will be the king of Israel. However, in another sense, God's plan for you is the same as was his plan for David. God has chosen you as his child, just as he chose David as his son. If you've trusted in Christ, God has purposed and is committed to using you to bring about glory for himself. God will not give up on claiming his own glory. Therefore, God will not give up on his plan for you. If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, you were able to do so only because God chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he adopted you as his son, as his daughter. He placed his spirit in you as a down payment of the ultimate work he intends to do in you. And so Paul can write to the church in Philippi and say, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion because his glory depends on it. You can't possibly know all the particulars of God's purposes for you, his plan for you, maybe to grant you physical health or a life of sickness. God's plan for you might include great success and great ease in school or in work, or it might be one frustration after another struggling to make it through each week. God's plan for you might include challenges in parenting or difficulties in relationships. It might include the death of a child. It might include the loss of a close friend. But the bottom line is that if you are in Christ, God's plan for you absolutely and certainly does include your sanctification now and your glorification in the life to come so that he might receive full and complete glory for himself in and through you. God is unfailingly committed to his own glory. So you can say with confidence, just as David did, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. 
We should take note that David's confidence does not make him cocky, doesn't make him arrogant. It leads him to worship. So in verse 5, we come to the words that at first glance seem totally out of place in this psalm. David is fleeing from real killers who want to physically put him to death. He hides in a cave and calls out to God for help. In verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. From the depths of the cave, David introduces this idea of the global exaltation and glory of God. We mentioned that verse 5 here is identical to verse 11. So we're going to consider this refrain in more detail as we look at the second part of the psalm. So we've seen here the God of providence. David is in danger. He hides in a cave. He takes refuge, not in a rock, but under the wings of God most high. God's revealed that he has good plans for David. God's plans for David are intertwined with plans for his own glory. So David is confident that God's plan will come to pass. So we mentioned that David's confidence in God led him to praise God. And this is expressed more fully in our second point. The God of all peoples. Verses 6 through 11. The God of all peoples. Verse 6 gives us another glimpse of the situation David is in. This time with a bit of a twist. Look there. He says, They set a net for my uh, excuse me, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. David's enemies have plotted against him, and in doing so, they're not just plotting against him, they're plotting against God. And now the tables have been turned. Either something has happened and David has been physically delivered in actuality, or else David is so confident that God will deliver him, that he can speak of the downfall of his enemies as having already been accomplished. Either way, the situation is good for David. Verse 7, my heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. The Hebrew word there means to be firm, to be set up, to be established. I once had to install a new mailbox post in the ground. The old one was kind of shifting around, kind of wobbly, and I wanted a new one that would be a little more sturdy. I wasn't sure how much concrete I should use, but the ground was really soft, so I just dug a really big hole, and I put a lot of concrete in that hole. I think I put several bags, three or four bags of concrete uh, for this uh, mailbox post. So I'm pretty sure I overdid it, but when I got done, the mailbox post was steadfast. It is still there to this day. It is not going anywhere. It's interesting here that that David is in physical danger. The the danger is outward. It's physical in nature. But his sense of optimism and well-being is not related to his outward situation. It's related to his inward heart condition. And his heart is steadfast. It's in good shape. As humans, we are embodied souls. We are eternal, or not eternal, we will live, souls who will live forever, uh, that God has united with physical bodies. And we often tend to uh, neglect uh, giving attention to our souls out of concern for our, our physical situation. And of course, the Lord cares about both. And so in this moment of physical danger, of outward physical danger, 
David turns his attention inward to his, uh, his inner soul, and he realizes that his inner man is steadfast. And this gives him reason to rejoice even when there is outward physical danger. This is the hymn we sang a moment ago, right? It is well with my soul. And because of this, David is determined to praise God. Look at the, the progression there from verse 7 down through verse 9. There's this progression where David moves from his, his inward heart to himself as an individual, solo, praising God, speaking then in much grander terms of awakening the dawn. It's as if he's calling all of creation to join with him in the worship of God. In verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. The word translated nations there uh, conveys not so much the idea of a a political nation state, but more uh, the sense of the diverse tribes and ethnic groups of the world, all the peoples of the earth. The Jews were one ethnic group, but David wanted to see all peoples, all the many groups of Gentiles come to worship Yahweh. David says the same thing over in Psalm 18. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. That verse is later quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans as a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. And in fact is fulfilled as Christ is proclaimed to the Gentiles. Verse 10 shows us that David's steadfast heart and his determination to praise God are rooted in God himself. He says, for... Or because your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. That phrase, steadfast love, is also used up in verse 3. It's from a, a Hebrew word that occurs almost 250 times in the Old Testament, translated throughout the Old Testament as mercy, kindness, loving kindness, or goodness. It's describing the nature, character of God himself. And this is the foundation upon which David longs to sing God's praise among the nations. And if it feels like this psalm has kind of a surprise missions twist that you wouldn't expect, it kind of does, and it kind of doesn't. So we we read things like all the peoples or among the nations, and our minds may go to missionaries and airplanes and fundraising and Christmas offerings, all the the things we associate with missions. And we we may wonder, how do those things fit with David hiding in a cave? David's thoughts here are not so much about missions per se. His thoughts are about maximum worship and glory for God. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you, among the nations. Let your glory, O God, be over all the earth. David is thinking about God and the worship of God and the glory of God increasing as the good news of his salvation ripples through the world. The nations are not the point. The worship of God is the point. And the way to maximize the worship of God is to call all the nations to join in his praise. Friends, we must never separate all of the missionary stuff from the worship of God. We don't start with the nations and the idea of doing missions because it's a noble or exciting or humanitarian type of thing to do. 
We haven't sent church members to Asia and to Africa because sending missionaries is just one of those things that churches are supposed to do. No, we've sent missionaries out because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We know that we ourselves were dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God without hope. And we've heard the good news that God sent his son to die and to be raised to life, to provide forgiveness, eternal life for all who trust in him. And we've heard that there are places where this message has not been proclaimed. And so we send out some of our own to go and tell them for the praise of God. We start with a right understanding of who God is, and that leads us to worship because we want the most worship of God possible, the most glory for God imaginable. We think about the nations. We think about going to them and inviting them to join us in the worship of Yahweh. And now this refrain in verse 5 and verse 11 starts to make sense. Even in the trials of life, it makes perfect sense to cry out, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is what we were created for. And it brings us great joy, even, especially, in the midst of suffering and trial. If we step back and take the Bible as a whole, we know that this idea of God's glory filling the earth has been God's plan from the very beginning. Genesis 1 Before Adam and Eve even fell into sin, God said, uh, it says, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's perfect, sinless image bearers were intended to fill the earth, extending the glory and the reign of their maker over all the earth. Think of the, the covenant with Abram where God promised to bless Abram and his descendants and says that in his offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees a vision of heaven with the Lord on his throne and angels surrounding him. And they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Think about the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Father, will you cause your glory, the glory that fills heaven, will you cause that glory to fill all the earth? There's the command of Jesus himself, go and make disciples of all nations. Habakkuk 2.14 gives us the beautiful promise that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's purpose in all that he does, filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory, and he will bring it to pass. Life as we experience it often doesn't seem to make sense. But if you've trusted in Christ, you can be confident that there is a plan. It's not haphazard. God not only is connecting the dots, he's placing the dots exactly where he wants them in order to bring about the good plans he has for us. There will come a day when all of us who have trusted in him 
we'll be able to look back and be amazed at the way God planned it all with such wisdom and with such love. How he wove it all together in a way that brought each of us maximum joy in him, maximum glory for himself, even the times we found ourselves hiding in a cave. It all fits together beautifully in our Father's wise and loving plan. God will fulfill his good purposes for us because he he is committed to his own glory. We can hope, we can rejoice in his worldwide glory, even when life doesn't make sense. There are many ways, many circumstances in which we could apply the truths of this passage. Let me suggest uh, just three simply as we close. First of all, uh, for everyone in the room who is a Christian, if you are a Christian, you've trusted in Christ, in the coming weeks, you will undoubtedly find yourself in a moment when something isn't going quite the way you would prefer. Hopefully, you don't find yourself hiding in a cave, fearing for your life, but we all know that difficult times will come. You might be in the middle of something, even this morning, that's heavy, it's burdensome, just doesn't make sense. I'd encourage you to consciously take that opportunity to thank God for his good plan for your life. Tell him in prayer that you trust him. Tell him that you can't see how this makes any sense. Ask for his mercy to deliver you. And then ask for the grace to do what David did, to worship God, to long for his glory, to find joy in his glory, even while you wait. Second application for you today, if you're here and you've not trusted in Christ, you're consciously not a Christian, never trusted in Jesus. Very simply, would you repent and believe even today? Place your faith in him. If you don't, then you're stuck trying to make sense out of things by trusting in destiny and karma and whatever. Don't settle for those things. Trust in God's plan of salvation in Christ. Even today, find refuge in the shadow of his wings. Then a third simple application uh, for all of us as a church family. So for the Crawford Avenue family, Let's be intentional in light of this passage. Let's be intentional that our first goal is always the spread of the glory of God. That our sending out of missionaries, any outreach we do at home, that these things would never become the goal in and of themselves. You know, we've thought a lot about missions in the last year or two, and Lord willing, we'll continue to do that. We've also been thinking and talking about our witness here in Harrisburg, across the Augusta community. Our last prayer meeting, we spent time praying for Harrisburg specifically. In these things, let's take care that we most of all are desiring that God will be worshipped and glorified. Our outreach, our sending out of missionaries, these things are just a God-ordained means to that greater end. So let's keep our focus on Him and on His glory. With these things in mind, let's pray together. Father, we, with David, we cry out to you, God Most High. We praise you that you have sent from heaven your Son, the Lord Jesus, and he has saved us by his life, his death, his resurrection. We praise you that our hearts are steadfast because of him. Father, we long to see you exalted in our own midst, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. 
We long to see you exalted among the nations. And so we ask that in your wisdom, you would use us towards that end, however you see fit. We thank you that you fulfill your good purposes for us. Give us grace to rest in you. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus.